Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity to see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This week's guest is Elizabeth Merriweather, creator of New Girl and The Dropout. If you didn't know this fact already, you might be surprised the same person was behind both shows. Trust me, Liz was more surprised than anyone when she was asked. I too was surprised until I watched The Dropout and it made like weird sense. It's not only the similar awkwardness of New Girl's Jess and the disgraced Theranos founder, Elizabeth Holmes, It's more that if you don't want to make a ridiculous story seem silly, you need someone who actually knows silliness. Thinking about that, maybe we want to do this episode where we talk about how one informed the other. So look, I I know the whole premise of this show is the one of it all, how and why someone wrote one joke. Uh, This episode just isn't that. I asked her about like four or five or six, I think maybe seven scenes, and they each have like four jokes in them. I don't know what to tell you. I just really like Liz Merriweather, and this is how I wanted to tell her story. And I think it worked out great. Uh, So, actually, we're going to start with a scene from New Girl, specifically the midpoint of Season 1, Episode 15, Injured, in which the whole crew is drunk because Nick has to get tested for thyroid cancer in the morning. So, here is that scene, and here is Liz Merriweather. I'm not going to lie. I think the pills are on top of me a little bit. I think you're right. So sad. Yeah, it's really sad your friend's getting an ultrasound tomorrow. It's just so hard. Are you using your best friend's medical crisis to feel my boobs with your face? Why is the whole world making love all at the same time? How many ears does Daniel Boone have? He's got a a right ear, a left ear, and a frontier. Frontier, get it? <laughs> you don't get to speak at my funeral. <laughs> what? For sure, 100%. What? Why? <laughs> because of that joke. Yeah, but... Jess, you don't want to talk at a funeral. I've tried that once. What kind of dummy fixes a washing machine using a knife? This kind of dummy! It did not go well. I don't want you talking at my funeral. You can go to my funeral, but you can't talk. My funeral is my time to shine. I want the girls to think I wish I brought Nick Miller to orgasm. And I want the guys to think I wish I bought him more stuff. 
And I don't want Daffy Duck voices and feeling sticks. You don't, you don't know how to be real. I can't have you trying to cheer people up. I know how to be real. Question, am I wearing a hat? So I am here with Elizabeth Merriweather. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Call me Liz. <laughs> I I was going to ask, of all showrunner types, I feel like you're, you're, you'll go by Liz in some things. You'll go by Elizabeth in some things. Some bylines for New York Magazine say Liz. Some say Elizabeth. I like to keep it spicy. Like <laughs> yeah. everybody on their toes. <laughs> so I, I, I want to start setting the scene sort of a where you were emotionally at this point of writing season one of new girl. So as fast as possible, like 30 seconds, can you explain your, your meteoric rise to the journey of having your own show at this point, like in 30 seconds, fastball, can you explain your complete, <laughs> essentially like your entire twenties as a writer, just, just so people know your deal. Um, I was a playwright in New York and a receptionist and over Abercrombie. Oh God, it's already too long. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was a playwright in New York and I got a pilot deal, um, a blind script deal with Fox. I went over when I was about 25, 26, I wrote a pilot that we shot called Sluts and then wrote a movie called Fuck Buddies and it became No Strings Attached. And then uh, and then after that, I wrote the pilot for New Girl. So, um, but I had never been on staff on a TV show. So it was like sort of a whole new, it was a whole new world for me. How did you feel being a TV comedy writer and specifically being the boss of TV TV comedy writers, many of which who had more experience than you. It was so easy. No. <laughs> it was... <The> end. <laughs> just I just fit in like fit like a glove. No, I um I, you know it's I never thought of myself as a comedy writer. I was a playwright, you know, in New York, and the, and the the plays that I wrote were um you know with a young Alex Timbers kind of like offbeat and um. If, and there there was a lot of comedy in them, but I, I really didn't think of myself as a joke writer or a comedy writer. And then LA has a way of sort of putting you in a box. And then it was, you know, you're a comedy writer. You're writing a sitcom on network television, which was something that I like, you know, I I really hadn't, um, I just didn't, I, I it was a world that I really didn't understand. And I remember setting out to like write my first pilot and I watched the pilots for so many shows like because I, I it was that whole idea of kind of how do you how do you set up the world of a show quickly in 30 minutes that's going to run for seven years, you know. Um, yeah. And, and, and then I kind of found myself the leader of a room of like incredible joke writers and <laughs> And, and, and it was like, it was a joy. Like it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, I love comedy. I, you know, I spent all of my twenties in New York going to, going to comedy shows, improv shows. I mean, I just, I've always adored it. I just never been like that good at it. So it was kind of like a dream because I got to sort of, I got to like be the one choosing the jokes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I look, I wrote, I'm not saying like, I'm not like, you know, I did write a lot of jokes, <laughs> But I also got to be this, like, I got to kind of be the, a witness to a lot of, like, amazing comedy in the writer's room. But, yeah, I mean, I think, like, 
it was a huge culture shock for me. It was like also coming from theater, you know, which is like all about rehearsal and having time to go over what scenes are about and to suddenly be, you know, sometimes making the scene up on set. I mean, in the worst case, the worst (laughs) cases, you know, just like standing on set being like, you say this, (laughs) you say that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I I had to find my way, you know, it took me a long time. It took me about three seasons to sort of (laughs) like, like feel like a leader, I guess, which is, I think it really, it it relates. I'm just talking about it because I think it does really relate to the dropout and like um, what I brought to the table for my own life for that show. And just that feeling of kind of being in over my head and like pretending like I knew what I was doing. Yeah. but yeah, I mean, walking into a room with like grown men playing with toys at a like long conference table, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a specific thing yeah. that I have come to like really revere and love. And... So I think the the scene that we're going to talk about, it, it's sort of like it does a really good job of encapsulating so much of the show and sort of certain character dynamics <laughs> in a way that it's. I didn't necessarily remember this scene, but you're like, wow, this is, you can show a person this scene, but like, I kind of know a lot of what this show is. <laughs> you sort of get CC and Schmidt's dynamic. You get a lot of Jess and Nick's dynamic, and you sort of have a Winston cutaway, so he sort of has that. But I guess as we talk about a scene like this, to the best of your ability, since this was uh, 10 years ago, can you walk through how, like, how a scene like this evolves? Does it start, like, with, a whole of like a scene needs to go here and this scene needs to do X and then we build up for it. And as much as best as possible, can you walk to how you sort of build the components to be a scene like this? Yeah. I mean, what I particularly loved about this episode um, was that it, 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 this, this episode went a little differently than how we usually did it because um, we, we loosened it up. I mean, I think a lot of the times in in sitcoms, you know, it's so much outline based. I mm. mean, it, th- this was also a huge cultural shock for me. It was like, just you figure out the story and you figure out the story and you figure out the story. And like, it's, you know, yeah, there's, there's acts and you have to hit 21 minutes, 35 seconds. And everything feels like a building block to the next thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's really, it's, it's incredibly difficult but it's also incredibly difficult to like create any sense of life on screen that way, I think. And what, I mean, our cast was phenomenal. So, you know, there's that, but why I love this scene is because there's a looseness to Mm -hmm. it that I think uh, we didn't, you know, we don't always have on new girl. Like we didn't always have on new girl, um, especially towards the end. Cause I think then you're just like, you're just like slotting in. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just like a little bit just like trying to keep it going. But yeah, this whole episode that we actually was supposed to air earlier in the season and the, the and Fox was like so freaked out by it that they they pushed it to later. Because of the death part of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, this was also like 2012. I mean, this was sort of before this was before Netflix. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was I mean, people like it, you know, if it wasn't if it wasn't scrubs people were like a little bit confused um (laughs) but yeah i think like we had to push it to later in the season and then but we were so proud of it um 
sorry. Yeah. I mean, we knew, we knew we wanted him to have this, to have this death scare. And we knew that, that it, it, it would push him to kind of confront that he hasn't done much Mm. in his life or like done what he sort of set out to do with his life. Um, And there's like, the reason I picked it also is because there's some improv, which was like a huge part of new girl and and I think people hear improv and they think, well, then what did you do? But <laughs> <laughs> I, it's actually like a really, it's really, it's like a actual whole other thing that you have to sort of control mm. and then edit, you know, and choose the timing of it and, you know, choose the moments for it and also set, set the actors up for the situation where they can improv, you know? Um, but the, improv was a huge part of, of new girl, especially for, for Jake Johnson, who's just like in, you know, incredible at it. Um, and I also chose it because the, our editor, Steve Welch, is like one of the best comedy editors, you know, around. And he actually built that whole song in the scene. <laughs> this is a sad song. Mm. This is the sad song in the world. Yes, it is. This is a sad. You just keep singing. Man. Okay. This is a sad song. Hey, hey. Mm-hmm. Sad song in the world. Got a nice voice, man. It is so weird being sober right now. Can I get some weird rapping? Nick Miller, Nick Miller from the streets of Chicago. Cause players play like they do, like they did. Cause the ballers ball in the in the hood, cause he's Chi Town hustle. In the words of the people of the of Chicago represent him, cause the players don't play and the players in the city. <laughs> Nick Miller, Nick Miller's a stone cold killer. Huh? Sing it, you know. You feel? Likes the taste of vanilla. Nick Miller, Nick Miller, he's the illest of the ill. Cece's rapping. He pours a hundred drinks and none of them ever spill. Plus he's super high on a bunch of pain pills. His favorite movie is The Big Chill. He's got a hairy chest cause he eats a bounce meal. Hey, hey. Mad flavor in his ear. Cause the ice in my glass represents the tears from my eyes. I love you, dog. This is a sad song. Nick Miller, Nick Miller, yo, streets of Chicago, rough and tumble one love, you my heart. <laughs> Nick Miller, Nick Miller never does anything. What? Like we were struggling and struggling because we had everybody singing like one after another in the script and we were struggling with it and I walked by the editing room like late at night and I just saw him like drinking whiskey, the editor, I just saw him like drinking whiskey by himself and playing a little toy keyboard. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he, I was like, dude, I was like, Steve, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just like cooking something up. You know, I mean, so I mean, a lot of like, a lot of the, it's crazy. I mean, making a network show is crazy. You have no time. And it's like those moments of magic when you're up against it and like somebody just, you know, steps up and kind of does something incredible. And I just remember that as being like this amazing moment with Steve. And then the final reason I chose it was because that is a real moment from my life with one of my really mm. good male friends, um, Mateo. We were drunk one night and in New York and he was like, uh, I don't want you to talk at my funeral. And like, I, I was so hurt. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was 
so hurt by it. And I like, I don't think he thought it was that big of a deal. And I was just like, it was like he'd stabbed me in the, <laughs> stabbed me in the chest. And I just like always remembered it and it made me laugh. And it was sort of that like funny thing of like, it's a good test of a relationship and sort of what is a friend, you know, yeah. wh- what friends would you want to speak at your funeral? I don't know. Yeah, no. I don't know. That's my, that's my whole thing with it. So let's, well, I, I want to focus on first the, the funeral part of it. I think I imagine you have that line and you have, and you have to find what is the point that you're trying to say with the scene besides like that one line, which is funny. And it, and it, it's sort of, you, you have Jess do a joke to try to make him feel better. And then his response is, I don't want you to speak at my funeral. Then I imagine you're like, Jake, improv something about what you want your funeral to be like. This is my guess. And then, but get to the point of, I need it to be this idea of real. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, part? no, I mean, you, you just you just said it much faster and better than I did. Yeah, I mean, we would always put a joke in for Jake, but then he would like build on it and and, and make it. A million times better but yeah I think like we would go into that scene knowing that there's going to be kind of a joke moment and then it's under that after that there's going to be a, a real moment between them and I think that's what new girl like that's tonally when new girl was working the best was like when there is that there's pathos along mm-hmm. with all the comedy and I think that's I'm not totally sure what pathos means <laughs> but I think it means like emotion or something I don't know yeah I think that's right I mean like so you have that that seems funny but Funny in a way that I can imagine network executives in 2012 being like, this is a... Because in some ways, this scene is like a play. It's like a closed mouth chuckle. It's like a... (laughs) Because it's like rare for a sitcom to have everyone essentially be part of the A story. Like it's a very plot light episode. It's just people reacting to this news. So it, it doesn't move. It's just sort of people discussing this and how... And then so I imagine they're like, this is... So then you ha- they were t- they were so t- they were so weirded out by it. Yeah. I mean and 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 that you just hit it exactly on the on the nail. Yeah. On the nose. Yeah. But uh yeah, that it was like where's the B story? What's going on? You know, and and wh- how is it going to feel like it has any drive? Drive is sort of a big note that you always get. So is anyway, sorry. So yeah, keep, so then the Winston cutaway is that <laughs> which is just like one I think it was partly a breakthrough for that character. Where and and for Lamorne, if like, if I remember correctly, it's like, I think at that point you didn't totally know Lamorne had. But well, we had no idea. And then you're like, you just like as this sort of pressure. It was wild, but also like I don't remember how many cutaways you had before. I mean, you were doing them, but like, is that joke being like we have this scene that kind of works, but like we need to sort of balance tone. Like, is that what you're looking for? You're like, we needed more. Even though the scene works as a composed piece, we need like more big comedy so people understand what show they're watching. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that thought out. It was it, I think someone had heard him do that impression on set or something. And it was like, I think with Lamorne and he and we've talked about it a lot is just there was a lot of just like throwing stuff at the wall mm-hmm. in that first season. And so we knew that he could sort of do that and it was funny. And especially with this episode, because we didn't have a B story and a C story so much, it was it was like everybody had to kind of comment on on what was going on in the A story. And so I think it was probably like, oh, we need to like have Winston weigh in here and sort of like, what is what is Winston's experience with funerals? And, 
Yeah, I mean, it was that was how his, unfortunately, that was sort of how his character developed over the first couple of years. It was just like, what what was making us laugh? Mm-hmm. And then we would sort of like build on that. It was, you know, super probably crazy making for him. But yeah, it'd be like, okay, this is what the characters are doing. What would be a funny thing for Lamorne, the actor to do? And then we'll build his character around what will be funny to watch him do. Yeah, that that's how they teach you to do it. in school. <laughs> that's, that's how you're supposed to build a character. Um, no, I mean, it's actually funny. Like when I first ta- I when Jay Kazan came on to direct the pilot, one of the first things he said to me was, like these characters in the script are really good, but they're you know it's it's not gonna matter. It's the only thing that matters is is the person that mm-hmm. you cast and what what are they what are they good at and what are, you know where is their comedic muscle? And it was such good advice because I think if I'd like sort of held on to some idea of what I wanted the characters to be, it would have you know it just wouldn't have worked. It's like how you know how are you gonna make how are you gonna make a hundred and you know twenty five episodes of something? You have to just lean into kind of what the actors yeah. do. So you talk about like you learn to revere joke writing and like, and I think I got a sense of that. I, I of like the show felt as much of like watching you love making a comedy with all these people that are so good at doing it. There's I don't know how I got that sense of it, but by the end, um, how how are you feeling about? Okay, we have this emotional scene. We need we need to find something for these people to do that's really funny. Like after doing 120 minutes, 120 times of finding a thing, how were you? How do you do? How are you feeling about looking for jokes? I mean, I I had a re- I mean, the, the experience was incredible, but I there were definitely like low moments in there where I just felt like. I, just trapped. I mean, it's seven years of your life and it's the only thing you're writing. And, you know, it was just like, I I was like, how am I going to get out? Like, what this, like, is this, you know, and, and, and so there are moments when you're putting jokes in that, that, that don't make you laugh, but you're mm-hmm. like, you know, that it's that cliche of kind of the comedy writer who like looks at a joke on a page and is like, that's funny, but doesn't <laughs> laugh. I mean, I, you know, that's, that was a lot of my mm-hmm. life. And, but then there would always be some moment. I mean, it sounds really dumb and disingenuous, but there there was always a moment with that show for me where I, like in every episode where I would just like lose my shit and like laugh so hard. It was like, you know, it wasn't maybe it was, there were definitely some real stinkers in that, <laughs> in that show. But like in each episode, there would kind of be this something funny or special yeah. or cool in it because I think because of the people that were working on it and and I the first season the first couple of seasons I was much more sticking to character-based comedy or like trying to do character-based comedy or you know trying mm-hmm. to have it if there was a joke it would kind of have to make some sense about like who that person was but then I think as we kept going that's the that's the tricky thing with with network comedy is you if you start chasing that joke, then suddenly you're putting in jokes that are like really broad and insane. <laughs> like, you're like, what's, like what's happening. Um, but I don't know. It's always that back and forth. Of yeah. Like, well, are people coming to the show because they want to, you know, dig deep with these characters or are they coming because they want to laugh? And, you know, I, I very quickly realized that they weren't coming for plot. Mm-hmm. So like that, that, that was the first thing that went out the window. And, and then it was sort of trying to figure out, 
um the tone it was always yeah. it's always that's the showrunner's like main job is just like being the person who who's figuring out the tone so coming out of it you know i think before watching the dropout i think there're probably a lot of people of like the person who wrote new girl was the person they asked to do the dropout yeah and yeah. I, including me by the yeah, way yeah yeah so i want to talk about it from sort of both perspectives now that you were the person they did pick and you did make it so first for you so like new girl ends in 2018 you're you find yourself executive executive producing three network comedy <laughs> project i feel like i remember reading an article which is like hollywood is a buzz with liz merriweather like they can't get enough of her you know, I you also have uh you also have a daughter. Yeah, I this... have that I have that article just like plastered yeah. on my wall. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I actually don't know what you're talking. About. I I don't remember it either. I looked for it, but no, I do there remember... was there was one pilot season where I had three. I think we had three pilots yeah. picked up or two pilots picked up or something. And yeah, I mean, but it, yeah, it was like this was never what I had set out to do. You know, I I, I like I said, I had never set out to write sitcoms, and so it, but I found myself kind of like running a bunch of sitcoms <laughs> and it, it, I it was hard you know yeah. I mean I I was I found myself because I I love I loved Bless This Mess I loved the experience of it but like there were definitely moments in that when I just felt tapped out I j you know just kind of trying to find find the comedic game and scenes and trying to kind of find the joy in it and it's yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I would, I would maybe go back to it now, but I, I definitely needed a break from, from sitcom writing specifically for a network, and I didn't know it. I didn't know that until they came <laughs> to me with a dropout, and then I was like, oh my god, get me on board! You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, this is what I want, you know. Um, and, and as you look at it, what do you can you see why it was right to have either you or a person with your background to do a project like this that is not a it's not a sitcom but like and its relationship to comedy is complicated or not complicated but interesting can you see why it was valuable to have a person who has spent seven years being able to look at a paper and be like that's a joke that's a good joke i honestly i mean <laughs> i don't know why they hired me I, you can I say think... no it's fun <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I think like in retrospect, you're like, oh, yeah, that that would be important. But I, I mean, Searchlight made me I had to walk the like Samuel French copies of my plays over to their offices on the Fox lot. Like, and I was like, I was like, cool. I mean, I've done a show for seven years that you could look for my writing, but they like they wanted to read my plays. I mean, I think they were they were really uh I think there probably was concern that I that that I was a joke writer, but Kate McKinnon yeah. was Kate McKinnon was attached at that point, and I think everyone was trying to figure out what the tone of this was going to be. Um, but I was a lot of the times it felt like it was Kate and I both kind of being like, "But we're not going to do comedy with this," and everyone was like, "Great, you yeah, know? right." <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I there's a lot of absurdity in that in the the story of the dropout, and I think people and the tone is it's a it's a really specific tone i think because it's not a murder story you know it's not this yeah. dark it's not true detective it's not this like very dark thing but it's serious i don't know i i, I think they 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 took a chance and i'm not i'm not being like uh i'm not like humble humble bragging or whatever i think they definitely took a chance on me i think the credit that they will get 
from at least for me is that I think a non-comedy writer, if they're asked to do this, would not know how to take a thing that can be funny and make it not be funny, but not be not funny. Right. I think it's really just having a really fine tuned sense of like how and it's hard to even articulate. It's a matter of being like, this is a funny thing a person said. You can ha- and you can have them say it in a way. And you can have a pause after they yeah. speak and you can have the score and the next thing you know, that's a laugh line. And to make it not a laugh line, there's things you have, you know, there's all these little things about pacing to like, like, to, yeah, you know, like to like, let's the example. Let's start with the example of the the Yoda quote from the, the scene in which Elizabeth is still at Stanford and um, she presents a sort of broad idea of Theranos to a professor there, Phyllis Gardner, played by Laurie Metcalf. Channing Robertson sent you? Yes, I'm in his graduate research group as a, a sophomore. Mm. Um, it's never going to work. A patch is too small to store full doses of a single drug, let alone multiple drugs and the reagents needed for long-term testing. But then even if it could, it would have to provide long-term storage for those chemicals at body temperature. And let's just, let's put all that aside. let's, Let's say that you were able to work out a way to do any of that. If you think that people want a patch to diagnose them and then put medicine directly into their skin, then you've never met a sick person before. People go to school for a very long time to understand how to diagnose patients. You can't get a diagnosis from a patch because human beings aren't machines. But doctors make mistakes. And this would be based on uh, data? Well, data isn't everything. Um, People your age need to remember that machines make mistakes too, especially when humans are operating them. Yeah, but it's it's fine. It's uh, nothing personal. You had an idea. It's not going to work. So you just, you keep learning. Keep trying. I'm going to be heading home and uh, very nice to meet you. Do or do not. There is no try. What? That's Yoda. From Star Wars. Oh. Professor Gardner! Wait, wait. I just think that... I think we can work together. Work together? Yeah. You're a, you're a, what, freshman, sophomore? I had just started my sophomore year. So you've had a couple of classes, maybe a seminar or two, and now you think you know enough to start a company? I just saw it as a, as a woman. You well, as a it. woman, let me explain something to you. You don't get to skip any steps. You have to do the work. Your work, other people's work, you have to do so much work that they have to admit that you did it, nobody helped you, you have to take away all their excuses. And then if you get anything, anything wrong, they'll destroy you and they'll be so happy to do it. So no, as a woman, I can't help you right now. And just one other thing, don't ever quote Yoda to anybody ever again. Science is trying. That's all that it is. You only get to really do something when you've been trying for so long that doing doesn't even seem possible anymore. So science is real. Yoda is a fictional green character who apparently knows everything in the universe except for syntax and grammar. So I'm sorry your idea is impossible, but that's the way the world works. The world works in certain ways until I have a great idea comes along and, and changes everything. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. 
now my husband is waiting for me with a glass of red wine and a foot massage and the DVD of my big fat Greek wedding, which came in the mail today. Now, of course, that Yoda quote was a one that Elizabeth was known for saying, and it shows up later in the show. But like, I think it's a good example of that's could be a funny thing for a person to say there. And this scene has moments where the characters, you know, like Laurie Metcalf does a thing the straight man in a scene would do, which is like, don't quote Yoda. I'm doing, you know, like. <laughs> so talk about just sort of how you have this fact, you have this scene, how to use it and how just like the conversations you had um, to make it be whatever it became. Um, oh, God. <laughs> no, I mean, it's so it's it's I think that Yoda quote for me was so ridiculous yeah you know the fact that she painted she painted it on the wall of her office it, um it, you know those details for me when i when i really kind of dug into the story were the things that made me sort of like made me love the character but also uh you know just push push me away from her too it, it was i i i think the awkwardness of it and the sort of um, devotion, her awkward devotion yeah. to things, I think, is is a really um, was this like really interesting, funny, absurd thing about the character? Because um, because like, there isn't a magic that that the, the story behind that scene is like is I think I wrote most of the dialogue in the actual outline, and I remember I was just like sitting on my porch, and I just kind of like went. It was one of those scenes where I kind of just like wrote wrote it really quickly. Um, what was fun about it was that it was the first time in her life and the first time in the story that someone was just yeah, saying yeah. no to her, that somebody was just pushing back and saying like everything that you <laughs> are and everything that you want to do is, is not going to work. Um, which is like yeah. great for comedy, obviously like the more kind of like the more sort of two opposing forces meeting uh, the, the funnier, the funnier it's going to be. I think there was also something that really made me laugh about her youth there. Like just like that, this kind of, I, I felt, I feel like I've been in that position in college where I would think I like had something about the world figured out and then talk to somebody who's it's like, it's like, cool. Okay. Bye. You know, um, which is, I, I was excited about. Um, but then I, I like, a lot of the dropout, I think a lot of the comedy in the dropout also comes from from the the sort of acknowledgement that it's in mm. the recent past, the sort of early 2000s of it. So I put that joke about, you know, that we're going to get a DVD in the mail and watch my big fat Greek wedding. And at the end, because I, I wanted to also sort of point out that Phyllis was wrong in yeah. some in in, in in I don't want to say Phyllis was wrong, but just that like that the world does change really quickly in this period of time and things are changing and you know um Elizabeth is coming from it from yeah. that point of view and Phyllis is sort of like slow down, but I wanted the audience to kind of be aware of the dynamics. Another thing about comedy in in with this story that I really understood I think because I, I found out doing the dropout that a lot of drama execs see comedy mm -hmm. as a monolith where they're just like comedy. 
<laughs> and I and I I understood I think after having done a lot of it, you know that there was shades of it, and I never wanted the jokes to to allow the audience to like distance themselves from from her from the character. I never wanted to be laughing at her. There are moments I think when you are a little bit, but I I mean the the intent was not to laugh at her. The intent was to to just highlight the absurdity of the situation and to to like show the show yeah. the humanity of of all the characters. So I think I did understand that really deeply and I, I think that a drama writer maybe would have been a little bit more uncomfortable with like the the yeah. shades of comedy. <laughs> like- yeah. What's interesting is if you watch the series as a whole and I I want to go through two other scenes that sort of show how it changes the it's a similar th- you have this thing about Elizabeth Holmes that sort of people know, like of like she was different in some ways and like would do different things. And you are slowly trying to have you get people used to it with a moment like this is which is not unlike a thing that Jess might have said on The New Girl. <laughs> like she's like like it's just it's just like it's a natural sitcom thing to do especially if someone says the word try and you're like ah oh, try like perfect it's just like right there it is like truly no i mean both both jess and elizabeth holmes are very awkward <laughs> to then go to another scene to show how this part of her sort of get shaded is uh, we'll go to episode two there's a scene uh to set the scene don lucas sets up a meeting with elizabeth and larry ellison where she tells her she has to start firing people and makes her chant gtfm get the fucking money get the fucking money do you get the fucking money i get the fucking money yeah then show me show me i get the fucking money I, I get the fucking money! 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 She visits her dad in the hospital who tells her she needs to get back to work. She goes back to the office and she walks into a little celebration of one of the main engineers, Edmund Koo's birthday. Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, giant pussy! Edmund, may I speak with you? Yeah. You can blow them out. (laughs) What's up? Can the prototype do the sepsis test? No. We're still pretty far away. Well, why, why, is, why isn't everyone working? We're just taking a break. Uh, you know we routinely put in 12-hour days. What is that? Oh, oh that... <laughs> that's... Uh, it's for my daughter. She, um... It was broken, so I was just tinkering with it at lunchtime. Your daughter plays with that? What, what does she do with it? She bakes things. Why doesn't she use a real oven? Because real ovens are dangerous for kids. Larry Ellison is getting us a meeting at Novartis. And you need to run your team 24 hours a day in shifts and work does not stop until we run a successful test. 
You want me to ask people to work 24 hours a day. Elizabeth, they have families, they have lives. They'll, they'll, they'll burn out, they'll quit. But people are replaceable. I, if you can't do this, I'm, I'm gonna start firing people. And get that out of here. Okay, okay. So again, this is like, this could be written to be so funny, which is her being like, why does someone have this oven? And you're like, can't they? And it's, but it's, it's her power position in that scene allows it to be like, if you are from, in, from Edmund's perspective, you're now like, I am uncomfortable. I don't know what I'm allowed to say in this. And you don't know how to feel. And you can see how power changes mm-hmm. a person. Power changes both how she approaches being like this and how people have to respond to her. I'm like, I'm so, I'm so glad that you picked out that joke. It's like one of my, I, I, I love that moment. To me, that the Easy Bake Oven joke is so sad. I, I like, I, I kept it in. I like, you know, there were many times when we we were trying to cut the script down a lot, and comedy is mm. the first thing to go with, with when you're putting comedy and drama. But I just I felt like after that scene with her dad, I love that moment because it's really I think heartbreaking, but also funny. And then that's that's what I you know that's what I really love to write, and because it, it's really a joke about how she doesn't understand what it is like to be yeah. a child or to be. Or to have a father who like plays with you, <laughs> like it's. But it's also her stepping into her kind yeah. of power, you know. And and the, actually, the the walking into the room with them singing "Happy Birthday" is based on me, like because there were many moments in New Girl when I would be, you know, just my feet were on fire, and I would like hear "Happy Birthday" coming from the writers' room, and. I would, <laughs> there was one horrible moment when i like stopped the party (laughs) but (laughs) yeah i mean so i i i was that was actually from my experience of just like that feeling of like don't you understand like Mm -hmm. what i'm up against and and then having to kind of acknowledge the humanity of the people you're working with and step out of your own sort of stressful existence for a second and it you know and so yeah that that section was like really kind of close to my heart i never killed ants though (laughs) what the show does really gracefully is there's a feeling of something is going on with this person but not being like this is it and i'm sure there's there were conversations i i i'd like to understand what the conversations were like because i imagine some people are entering the room being like she's on the spectrum she's a sociopath we need the show to give that but also any answer you give them especially early on in the show and then the show is just about a person who has this opposed to the whatever just like being with this person and trying to see the parts that make sense and don't make sense can you talk about what those conversations were like yeah i mean i i just pretty early on made a decision that i wasn't going to tell the story of a young woman who had no feelings because i just i didn't i I think maybe that could work for a movie but for an eight episode you know, limited series, I, I just, I, I needed the audience to hook in with her. I needed the audience to feel for her. Um, and, and I, and I, you know, I think all of this is a dramatization. And so it's like sort of hard to talk about a real person who I've never met and have never spoken to, but 
I, you know, I, the way I saw the story was that this is a character mm. who really changes a lot over the course of the story, not somebody who kind of sets out to like commit fraud and, you know, is it quote unquote sociopath? I, I just, I don't know what a lot of those words actually mean. And so I think I just really was like, you know, that's not good for storytelling. What's yeah. good? Like, I, like it's not good to, to go into a story like this mm-hmm. with an agenda. I think the reason that you're dramatizing something is to open up the conversation about it to, to, to present all of the kind of richness of it, the complexity of it, and then allow the audience to take from that different things. I think if, if I'd gone into it being like, I'm going to prove that this character is a sociopath. I don't think that it would have worked, you know? Um, and I think people use those words all the time and sort of yeah. don't really know what they mean. But I did get into like a little bit of an argument with my friend's husband who is a psychiatrist. And, <laughs> and he was like really getting into it with me. And I was like, I just, I'm yeah. not telling that story, you know? So I think, um, yeah, but there was a lot of conversations about that, and there were a lot of conversations about the comedy in the in the the show as well. I, you know, Hulu, Hulu was sort of constantly to their credit, but like constantly kind of pushing back on me a little bit of like not letting things get too, you know, too silly. I think they mm. used the word goofy in a notes call, and it just like chilled <laughs> me to my core. <laughs> I'm so glad that you had the same reaction to that. It's the word, word is it's they terrifying. Said goofy to me. They said goofy to me. like go- the words go- goofy and quirky. Like I, I have like a PTSD oh, yeah. reaction to them. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like, and yeah, but I mean, there were definitely moments in scripts where we pulled back from the comedy. You know, can you because, think of an example? Yeah, I mean, um, well, there was a whole section that we cut out. Uh, that we actually shot and cut out when Don Lucas comes to visit the the labs for the first time there's a sort of crazy sequence where they're running around getting the machine mm-hmm. ready and of course like you know in New Girl like that like that's my that's my bread and butter and I yeah, was like yeah. so I was so excited to like write that and shoot it and there it was like double the length and there was a scene where <laughs> there's a scene where Elizabeth's assistant runs into the lab and she's like I need to make coffee. The coffee machine's broken. Who's an engineer? And like everyone raises their hand and then they run in and like, then it's like all these engineers trying to like fix a coffee machine. And she's like, forget the coffee. You know, it was, it was a lot of that. And, and then when we started watching it, we were like, Oh, this is tonally, you know, this is just tonally too, too crazy. Um, And I also have to like really Michael Showalter who directed the first four episodes has that, has that, sense of tone and yeah you know in a, in a great way i think that if there's one scene that i would point to that shows what how you approach this the sort of can define how you approach this that it, it essentially the scene where she tries out the voice the patients know that they're participating in a trial go back in there edmund go back in there edmund Go back in there, Edmund. Go back in there, Edmund. This is an inspiring step forward. An inspiring step forward. An inspiring step forward.
done. RV is out. Good. He didn't understand the vision. You've told me everything I need to know, right? Yeah. I just got back from Nashville. Don, this is an inspiring step. What you have a cold? Uh, no, no, I'm fine. I, everything's fine. That scene is like everyone who's approaching the show, they're like, she's going to start doing the voice. We're all going to laugh at the, all of it. And you have... So it's a big moment, and it's also, like, a way to communicate a lot to the audience of, like, this is what the show is going to be like. And I, and, and so in some ways that scene is, she, you shoot when she tries out the voice incredibly dramatically, and yes, she tries it, and there, that is a laugh line where someone goes, do you have a cold? That's like, but even well, that doesn't just, play, I, but doesn't even play that funny. No, I didn't want it to. Yeah, I really wanted the, vo- like, the voice was never a joke to me. The voice was, like, an emotional, um coping mechanism that it was like a disassociation but then I would take a step back and try to you know when I'm you you switch points Mm. of view when you're writing the two characters and I would like just try to think about the people around her that knew her suddenly hearing her have a new voice (laughs) like there is where you're like well I do see this voice as this like really dramatic emotional thing but then there's just this absurdity of like suddenly you know a co-worker comes in speaking differently so it's someone's gonna mention it um so yeah but i mean i think the voice was a huge huge deal of just figuring out the tone of that because if amanda had not done it in an organic way it would have so taken you out of it and felt like a sketch and you know and um and 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 and, and by the way i worked on the show with Kay McKinnon for a long time and she had that same sort of feeling was like, you know, it, it needs to be organic and not, not like a, you know, perfect imitation, quote unquote. I think I saw that you said that, that scene was a reshoot or was that a different scene that was? Oh, the scene that was a reshoot was the, her in the mirror, um, for like when she's like forward, it's oh, like forward, after. Forward. Some, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Forward. Got it. The one, the the one that's become sort of a a, a meme thing that I <laughs> send out <laughs> for text sometimes, but um, yeah, I mean, for me that voice was was really emotional, yeah. and so I I I just decided that it wasn't ever going to be funny for her. Yeah, you know, it wasn't ever comedy for her. I wouldn't call the dropout a satire, whatever satire means. As but, no, it's but not. There, yeah, there yeah. are moments of a satirical lens, and specifically with male characters and specific male characters. Larry Ellison, obviously, that is she's shot in a satirical lens. The Walgreens doofuses. Right. All we know is what they put in their own literature. The, the, the Theranos has been. Uh, what is it? It's he's very prepared. Microgreens. Awesome. What's microgreens? Salad. Theranos has been salad is tiny salad. over the last seven years by a majority of the largest pharmaceutical companies. I called the pharma companies. No one will even call me back. Look, it's a risk, but everything is risky right now. The economy <laughs> is tanking. Yeah. Startups are the only thing making money. Look around this hotel. Twitter is worth $3.6 billion. Twitter's not taking blood. Uber cab was valued last year. What's Uber cab? Believe it's where it lets you pay for a cab on your phone. Right, is that right? That's right. Jesus. I could have thought of that. You could have used that, right, Wade? What do you mean? Because of that DUI you just got. 
Come on, we can laugh about that, right? We're out of the deal unless we see the device, the labs, everything. Kevin, take the lead. Thank you. Oh, this is spicy. And I think probably the best example is William H. Macy as Richard Fuchs or whatever, Fuchs, whatever. Fuse, <laughs> Fuchs. yeah, Fuchs, yeah. Like almost every scene he is in there, though you don't pass judgment on Elizabeth Holmes, it, I will say you maybe pass judgment on him at times. Like, and the world. <laughs> and the world, you don't want him to sue you. Uh, but the world of the show sort of, but in general, like when, obviously there are times you didn't want to pass judgment on certain characters, but when you're, when you're showing certain people like these people, how were those conversations? How did you want to portray them? Who were the people that you felt the show needed to convey in a certain way to, to make the case you're trying to make about Elizabeth? Yeah. I mean, I I think that the Walgreens episode was like the, the biggest conversation in terms of tone and comedy, because I had seen, I'd always gone into it sort of seeing that episode as a step out, you know, like tonally, just like, I think it was for me, it was like the light at the end of the tunnel because I, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to write this drama, you know, I'm going to get through these first three episodes and they're going to be really dramatic. And I know I have the old white men episode <laughs> coming up and I get to like, I get to be like a little bit of a commentator yeah, yeah. again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I there again sort of a lot of hulu conversations about the tone there and i mean a, what actually happened with walgreens is pretty incredible and so you know i remember getting a note from hulu where they said it's just not believable that they would not actually look at the box or do a mm-hmm. test a real test in the box and i was like i know it's not believable it's the truth it's <laughs> what actually happened and it's totally ridiculous and I think I felt like the comedy was justified in that episode because like I had to dramatize why they got sucked Mm. in. I had to dramatize kind of the, the sort of context of, of them coming from this, you know, corporate world and walking into Silicon Valley and feeling excited about, you know, like I, I just, I, that was like a, it felt actually important to the story, but it was, that was a really, that was, that was an episode where I felt like, I think Michael Schulter and I both felt like we could sort of like cut loose a little bit after like, after the, like more of the drama. Well, yeah, it's paced more um, like a comedy. The scenes, the, the everything, the how it's cut, how there's the hijinks that you sort of were not allowed to do with Don Lucas. Like this has the, farce like yeah, quality of like boom 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 and what is this and this they're in a car and then he leaves the car yeah. it's like yeah they're like the running to the cars is a little uh bonkers <laughs> but i think i remember there were so many funny alts that we gave to alan ruck at the end there's a scene in the hotel where he brings up his boss's dui and then there's like this really awkward moment and we had so many funny joke outs that he said, like, have you, you know, have you checked out the gym? Yeah. Like just all these like weird, awkward <laughs> kind of, like, 
jokes and um and then we got to the editing room and it just like that was another moment where I was like oh this is too sitcom that there's this kind of like that we're going out on like what felt like sort of yeah. a joke or like a written joke so it was it was it was, it was constantly like back and forth like that I will say yeah I it never was a satire and I think that was something that I had to realize that I, I look at like succession which is like one of my favorite shows I you know I'm this you should <laughs> check it out this secret secretly good show succession no but like that feels like much more of a yeah. satire to me and I think like this I think I had to find this tone that felt a little bit more like you're with the people as opposed to like looking at them from it from yeah. a distance we'll be right back with liz merriweather where we'll discuss the theranos machine as a metaphor for elizabeth holmes need to connect and the leaked document that says that netflix is looking for more shows like new girl support for this episode of good one comes from the wondery podcast wiki hole do you know when crystal pepsi was discontinued or what was in al capone's vaults or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast Wikihole from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to Wikihole, you learn that that's the sciencey term for eardrum. Wikihole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow Wikihole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Wikihole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Now back to Liz Merriweather on how she approached the idea of truth while fictionalizing a true story about a famous liar. I want to ask you about, you're, you're talking about the dramatization and scenes that you felt like you needed, the part of the story that does not feel real and how you can make it feel real and, you know, all that stuff. And I think um, you'll sometimes bring up the idea of truth because often in interviews people are like, why are there so many shows about scam artists? And it's like, uh, I just yes. made this one. It's not like you're in charge been, of all of them. I've been asked that question. But it's like. And I'm like, I did I didn't know. I didn't know I was doing it. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, you did the show. For, but you'll bring up the, I, I think it's a, aptly, you mentioned that the very nature of truth is being questioned. You know, what is true? What does it mean for something to be true? And it, and it comes up in the show. And I was thinking a lot about, uh, thinking a lot about that idea as preparing for this interview. And since growing up, your dad was a newspaper man, which sort of, there's some ideals of what truth is there. Your mom is an artist, which there are other ideas of truth, right? There's like, there's factual truth, there's artistic truth, there's emotional truth, truth in comedy, blah, blah, blah. In general, how do you think about truth in your art and how do you think about truth here? The truth that I'm always, I think, trying to write and 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 trying to, what, what, what makes me 
the happiest in scenes is is when you're not allowed to settle like truth for me is like who is the human truth the truth of being a human in the world Mm -hmm. and that moments are so fleeting i like the kind of undercut joke or the or the suddenly like a switch into something really emotional from something really funny or you know i i like those those switches Mm -hmm. because i do feel like that is that's human and um i guess in general this show i I, I did, like I said, I, I didn't set out to sort of have this big point to make about truth, but I, I think that yeah. I, you know, in working on it, I just, I just came to really, I guess also understand how much, how fragile truth is, how fragile it is to, mm. um, to, to be honest when it's not, easy to be honest and and all and like i think journalism bureaucracy whistleblowers like these are these are the ways that these are the tools that we have to kind of keep people honest and and they're all they all come at this huge cost and it's all really fragile and the show obviously like me working on the show was up against a lot of world events and things going on (laughs) like and so it was the longer that the process was the more I kind of came to realize what everything meant to me, especially during the pandemic and just watching all mm. of the kind of everybody being forced to become scientists in some ways. Um, mm. and all of those conversations, but yeah, I, 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 I really, I, I really tried to not have a point to make or an agenda. I really was just like trying to tell the story of the humans involved and try to be truthful truthful to their yeah. to their humanity and i i think that that's what i'm i'm setting i like set out to do and then i succeed like 40 percent of the time so <laughs> um so i think one way that sort of reflects how you had to figure out this sort of version of truth versus um, what felt true, what you f- had information oh, yeah. as related to, what felt appropriate, is the um, romantic relationship between uh, Elizabeth and Sonny. And because it's a, just much more complicated to depict than sort of like the facts of a business and the thing. And, and in many ways, you know, uh, I, I heard you talk about partly like there's not sex scenes really between them and, and how you use dance. Can, can you talk about through that lens, how you approach that, that part of the story, which is, again, it's, it's a true thing that happened. They had this relationship, but like, it is private, whatever that means, you know, how did you think about it? And how did you reach how you decided you wanted to approach it? It was both the, the kind of most exciting, which is a weird word, but like for, as a writer, it was an exciting part of the story because I felt like reporters and journalists couldn't touch it because there wasn't facts about it and there was you know it 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 needed to be dramatized so I was excited to kind of dig into it um but at the same time I was the most scared of it because I had nothing to work off of and I was really aware that these are real people and that is private you know it's private and it was you know Mm -hmm. so 
and I wanted to get it right, but I also didn't have a lot of story space for it. You know, it it was a, a lot of the times we just came up against like there's so much other business you know, machinations that have to get mm. dramatized to understand what happens to the company that we didn't have a ton of time for, you know, sunny B stories or C stories or, you know, I mean, so it was like <laughs> those moments that we had them, we had to kind of get a lot into those moments. Um, and I did, I wrote like a couple sex scenes um, also because I, you know, coming off of seven years of a sitcom, I was like, we, I, we get to not cut to the next morning like it's incredible um but <laughs> yeah like it came back from legal which makes total sense but it, you know it came back from legal they said to me if you're gonna write a sex scene they both have to be good at sex <laughs> what this isn't an no, email no. they said this <laughs> okay, um no but just like now it's like for you to assert that legal said that you'd have whatever. And I, I understand it and agree with it. You know, there's just like that. This isn't about like diving into that part of their relationship and making assumptions about it. But as a dramatist, as a writer, I was like, how am I going to write scenes where they are both good at sex? And I actually tried to write one and they, and the, <laughs> And it just turned into like the two of them saying, "Oh, you're really good at." <laughs> just turned into the two of them, which <laughs> seems like something really good Elizabeth at maybe you're would really say. <laughs> which just yeah, which just seemed like more awkward than before almost. Um, and so, th- but I I wanted to show the intimacy, obviously, and and the sort of the history and the connection, and you know, I want I wanted to show that between them. And that's kind of where some of those dancing scenes came from, because that was a way to do that without, you know, going to to, to physical stuff. So that that's like that scene that the scene with the Lil Wayne song, um, where she walks into the office and is dancing dancing for him. Um, that was that sex scene. That, and then I had to change it. What did it say in the script? That resulted in that dance. Um, I think awkwardly was used, but no, I mean it's all Amanda. Amanda's like unbelievable yeah. in this role, obviously, and like brought so much. I I love. It was funny when I was like, you asked me to pick scenes and you know moments from New Girl and The Dropout, and I was like, oh, I'm really not Aaron Sorkin. Like I'm not. <laughs> I'm not like a writer who. <laughs> loves dialogue i mean obviously i love dialogue but i think my favorite moments in both new girl and the dropout are physical you know are are actors Mm. kind of having weird awkward physical moments or like or like just looks between actors or you know that's like i that's my favorite kind of comedy and and Mm -hmm. and i don't write that really i mean i write the moment but obviously it's it's like the actor who takes it and runs with it i imagine it's really gratifying as a writer to be like so and the same thing with like the improv and the new girl scene which is like i'm creating a i guess a playground or whatever with rules that are so clear that this can happen like i can't do this i i can't be a man of seafried in this moment or i can't reach whatever it is but i've I can get it to a point that 
when a per- how the actor responds to it, it's like the thing my brain couldn't have but Absolutely. wants to I mean, get it. Otherwise, I would write, you know, novels or something. <laughs> I, th- I, I think it's <laughs> like, or I would perform my own joke. You know what I mean? I, I, I think obviously stand-ups, it's like that's that's what they do. But I, I, I love the process and it's scary and sometimes it's really hard and sometimes, you know, you're disappointed. But I love the process of handing it off. I love that because I think that's where the best comedy and stuff comes from is when mm-hmm. the actor really makes it their own and and then I meet them on the other side in the editing room <laughs> I pass yeah. it off and then I'm like okay hi <laughs> um I've heard you mention and uh that the thinking about the Theranos machine as a metaphor for yeah Elizabeth and how she her, her relationship to the world can you talk about how at what point the process that dawned on you and how that either shaped how you thought of the story or how you've ended up framing the story? I think it came partly from necessity because I am so not a chemist or an engineer. And I, I, I was like, how am I going <laughs> to approach the science in this show? And, and it, the science is so important. Um, but I, I felt like I, I took that sort of step back where I was like, I'm an audience member. I'm watching this. What am I, like how do I absorb it as an audience member quickly? And I w- I realized that the emotion, the character choices, and, and like making the science into emotional choices, and that pushed mm-hmm. the the character story forward was sort of the only way to to go. Um, but yeah, from the beginning, I think that was a part of the reason why I was so drawn to this story was because the box felt like such an amazing metaphor of just you know, here's this young woman making a box that's going to take people's blood and examine it and then tell that person who they are. It is just this like strange way of trying to like connect with another person. <laughs> like, you know, this is, you know, yeah. or that was, that was my understanding of it from, from just like a pure emotional level was just this like, actually creating a machine to make a connection with another person. Um, and so I kind of went with that. Uh, and it definitely helped focus some of the science research, you know, cause that, it was, there were definitely like holes that we could have gone down there where you're just like all of a sudden there was like, there was a prototype that we totally cut out of the show because it just, they tried it and it never worked. And like, I, I was like, I, it, this is like the fourth prototype that they've tried and it hasn't worked. And I don't know what to like, you know, and I don't know what else to kind of take from that. Yeah. And it, it and you see it in the, the scene with Laurie Metcalf where you get a sort of fundamental problem of that. This is a person who's taking a tech perspective on the world, but about human beings health, the human body. Yeah. Yeah, and that reflects both her perspective on humans, and that inf- that influences both how you portray her with humans and also business problems that arise. Yeah, I mean, it it was it was something I talked to designers about too a lot was just this idea that humanity and messiness was always up against this like vision that she had for herself and the world and the company, and so we always wanted to just show the clash of that and. I think especially mm. in the costumes, like Claire Parkinson was our costume designer and she just did such a good job. We, we talked about how the, the character's costumes always had to be a little bit off or always had to be like tailored a little bit wrong. 
but just that kind of idea of like choosing choosing what you want to present to the world but always running up against who you actually are or what the world actually is Mm. (laughs) like and that is like you know from one angle that's really funny and then from another angle it's really sad it's constantly kind of being out of place what's interesting about having elizabeth be motivated by connection and sort of not even understanding how human connection works is it it mirrors what your job is as the person creating this show because you are also trying to figure out how to get people to connect to this mm-hmm. person so they're not completely detached observers to this can you can you talk about and, and I, it's it's I'm trying to think of what the question is 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 it ultimately that her strive for connection is the thing that you used as a way to make audience members feel <laughs> well, connected it's to it's very it's very universal you know i mean i think i think we all yeah. feel um everyone can relate to just the feeling of of desperately wanting to connect with somebody and not knowing how or not having the tools to do it. But if, I mean, if you're asking me, did I see, did I constantly experience the parallels between making the show and, and the story of Theranos? The answer, the answer is yes. Um, I mean, first of all, we have the same name, but yeah. the process of producing a show is not unlike having a startup. There's like this, crazy ride that you're on and you're selling it to a lot of people and and i don't know i just i was always aware of that in a very scary way of just, just like writing a scene and then being like oh i really hope i'm not doing that in real life and you know well there there's something wild about you're both trying to make what she says believable yes. like you're both in a scene being like i'm saying something and she is to in the text of the scene is believe what I'm saying, and the meta text of the scene is believe this is what happened. Yeah, I mean that was another issue with the science was like we're we're trying to in the writers room we were like trying to figure out what the science was was both supposed to be and how it was not doing what it was supposed like it was always like with the show you're always like what is she. What does she want you to believe? What does she believe? What, you know, Mm. what do we want the audience to believe? It it was a lot of like figuring out all of those things. And I mean, there, there are definitely times when I was just, that was another moment of kind of like passing the ball to Amanda where you're like, (laughs) I don't exactly know what's in her head in this scene. If I'm being honest, you know, and Amanda's like, I do. I know. I know. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, great. (laughs) You know, um, yeah. Or imagine you, if Amanda does five things, when you see it happening in the edit, you'd be like, "That feels like what is?" Yeah, the thing? I mean, the the scene after. I think the hard, the hardest moment of that was the after um, Ian Ian Gibbons kills himself. There's a scene with a puppet, you know, where she has this finger puppet that they're gonna that they're testing out for the Walgreens launch. And it was it was a real story where around that time that Ian died, there was an anecdote that like these two ad execs from Shiat Day came into her office and she was just like playing with finger puppets. And that was like an anecdote from the, the podcast. And obviously just like that really stuck with me. And then we put it in that in that moment and Amanda did like 
I think seven takes and they were all really interesting and great, but that was definitely a really hard scene for me to access where she was, where she, what was going on in her head and, and not letting that get too sort of distancing for the audience. I mean, that, I think that was the hardest scene for me to kind of like figure out how to get in, how to access her. And then she had a puppet on her hand, which was, either helped or didn't (laughs) (laughs) and what the one thing in terms of judgment uh, on her and and that i was always curious about with the show which is she is so um seemingly becomes so fluent in the sort of like language of parts of feminism that involved helping her personally and and it's a really hard challenge to make sure the audience is either, you know, like you can, you know, how to not pass judgment on her fem- feminism, but also like then you're just sort of presenting feminism as this thing that people can exploit. And that's what it actually is. You know, like what are the conversations like of like how to not throw feminism out with the sort of feminist exploitation bathwater? <laughs> <laughs> um. Ooh, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to see that. <laughs> but no, what oh, no. you described as the experience of being a woman. No, I, I think, <laughs> I, I think that um, that was a. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was early on. I remember I was like meeting with a designer, an interview with a designer, and she, to her credit, was like, "Why are you telling this story? It's about a female CEO does this really bad thing. Like, we, like, do we need this story in the world?" you know, aren't there enough obstacles? And it's a really good question. And it's a question I ask myself constantly. And um, the answer that I came up with was that I, I think it's, I think it's just such an interesting story about being a woman. I think that, that, you know, if we just told the stories, the girl boss stories, the sort of, you know, the, the good people stories you're denying a lot of what the experience is of being a young woman in power and and the choices that you're faced with and the way that it changes you and and you know what power actually is i mean it's it's that complicated thing of like you're fighting you're fighting you're fighting to get power to even get close to power or to like get into Mm. the room or to have a seat at the table or whatever. And then once you get it, I think that's, that's the part of the story that hasn't been told as much of like, what kind of a leader are you going to be? What kind of a person are you going to be? Um, but it was like, what also what I loved about the, the story as it related to feminism was that it was really complicated that yes, like she's using, she's using that language. She's using, you know, herself as a woman, as a, as she literally uses it in a commercial, which we did in the sixth episode. Um, but she also faced a lot of issues that, you know, a man wouldn't have to face. Yeah. But then I think you have these, two, these other female characters in the story that are so important, like Phyllis Gardner, who's coming from a different generation and, you know, fought so hard and like had to break down every door. And then Erica Chung, who's like, you know, this incredible young woman who has nothing and sort of has the courage to stand up 
to Elizabeth. So I, I, I was proud of that sixth episode because I felt like it, I really wanted to tell those three stories of what it is to be a woman mm-hmm. side by side and to kind of let the audience look at those different, different choices that women can make and, 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 you know, and make a decision about <laughs> what the right, <laughs> what the right choices yeah, are, yeah. Or just or just different, like the different ways that, that it, that be, what, what does it mean to be a woman in science and kind of what that experience is? How does it change you? And, and how does it, change you for the worse sometimes i don't know but i i, I like that yeah. it was complicated because i i felt i just feel like right now we're in this moment where people want things to be really black and white and um that's not been my experience when it comes to being a woman <laughs> did you become well either did you feel like you became a better boss from working on this or do you feel like working on this allowed you to sort of like see yourself as a boss with more sensitivity. Well, I actually think this was like working on this was really me having, it was me writing about all the mistakes I made as a boss early on. It was like Mm -hmm. a way of processing, you know, my own journey as a leader but what was funny was that this show I didn't really have to be a leader for like about a full year because of COVID so I was alone with the scripts actually writing and it was the first time in so many Mm. years that I had the time to actually just write and not manage people and um so I was writing about managing people but not having to do it which was a dream (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah, I mean, I made I, I I made a lot of mistakes early on with New Girl, and it was just a really hard job. And I, you know, so yeah. I think that's what like that. Some of this show is definitely like taken directly from my life. I I was also had a sleeping bag in the office, and you know th- those kinds of things. And do you feel like now that you've left that experience behind, and now you feel like you've matured out of it, like? Um, no. Is it feel like it's, it's, got it? Cool. Like, did, like, is there a relief of like, okay, now it's out there. I don't have to. No, I mean, I process. Been, I, I, I love people. I love managing people. I love my job. But I think that you know, ultimately, I'm a writer and I'm an introvert, mm. and you know, I'm like one of those leaders that has a big meeting and then has to like go sit in a dark room by myself and like stare at a wall for 10 minutes afterwards, you know, it's like to come yeah, down yeah. from it. Um, but that was my big lesson. That was my big journey actually. Uh, you know, when I, when I felt like I was doing the worst, the worst job at being a leader I, I went to therapy and one of the things that came out of it was you have to just be the leader that you are, you know, not the one that yeah. you have in your head. And that was like, that was a big um, moment for me. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm running a show right now with my friend who's also running it with me and she's doing a great job. And I'm like, I, I, <laughs> I'm not. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's so strange the job of showrunner is so strange and like nobody wants to listen to that podcast, but it's, it's a very, <laughs> it's just a very strange job that, um, 
I love, I, I love, but I also, it's very mm-hmm. nice to be a writer sometimes to just be a writer. Um, Around when the, I think, I can't remember the exact time, but it felt like the show wrapped and then there was like a leak of a Netflix report where they like determined that the, sh- the comedies and TV shows that everyone wants oh, right. is New Girl. <laughs> yes, and this I- is like, New Girl ended four years ago and it did not feel like there was like a huge demand for it. I mean, like, I'll, yeah. I'll be honest. I wrote a piece being like, it feels like New Girl is a t- thing of a different era or whatever. Oh, I didn't and read now, that. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I love I love New Girl with all my heart. It just <laughs> felt like, it felt like, what the irony of it, and I'll admit this to you, which was that, like, it felt like the only comedies people wanted were the things that Netflix was doing, mm-hmm. right? Were, like, these sort of streaming co- comedies. Right. So then it's, like, not that long afterwards, Netflix, like, actually, we only want New Girl. <laughs> And now you're doing the dropout. You're doing another adaptation, which is not like the new girl. It was so what, that, that, that you... came. I had no idea that it happened. And actually, like a magazine, like a fancy magazine, like emailed me for comment. And I was like, I am not going to comment on this. <laughs> this is a losing. This is a losing battle. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was so surprised by that. I don't. You know, I I don't understand. I think what they're maybe what they're saying is that they want, um, like cheaper comedies. You know, like <laughs> comedies that where it's like the. I mean, I, so many times we would just be in the writers' room and we're like, well, like something else has to happen in the loft. And if you watch the show, it's just like the loft keep there's like secret doors and <laughs> like it all has to kind of happen in this one set. And you're constantly, you know those limitations help you sometimes and they give you, they, they make a lot of comedy. Um, but I mean, when we were making new girl, nobody wanted new girl. I mean, I, I remember I had this like a very funny meeting at Fox with the president of Fox who they always wanted it to be a show that quote unquote, like everybody could watch. It was always like, why is this not modern family? Like, and, yeah. and we could never get, older men to watch it and it was always like how are we going to get older men to watch this you know and now if you look at it you're like that's not how the you know business model works at all now it's like like let's make it for let's make shows for like niche audiences but at the time it was like older men older men and that's part of the reason why we changed the theme so i mean we were like trying yeah we were like trying to we were chasing like a a, a imaginary 45 year old man (laughs) It's like new girl. I guess I'll give this a try. Um, but I ha- I remember the meeting, this meeting with the president of Fox, who was like, who just held up this graph of our viewership decline from the premiere, and it like as if I didn't know, you know. But it was like, yeah. and then I we were laughing about it in the writers' room, and we just had this bit where like the graph just keeps going down, and like <laughs> there's all these assistants like holding paper out in like the parking lot and the grass is like <laughs> going down and you're like looking out the window but yeah I mean it was always like why like why are you not modern family was sort of the was the question that that they were sort of asking us I mean we also got a lot of support from them but I, I guess yeah. it ju- anyway basically when I heard that Netflix said that I obviously laughed because <laughs> y- you don't that's not how you make television you don't set out to kind of make a thing like a thing that's already existed and that's you know 
anyway. And that's not how we especially make a, the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially a low concept. I yeah. like your theory that post pandemic people want more stories just inside their own homes. <laughs> I mean, I love quote unquote binging shows, but that idea started like while we were making the, I mean like, you know, and then I was so scared when I got the dropout job because I was like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do mm-hmm. the like end the episode, you know, with a cliffhanger or whatever. Like I had no, <laughs> no idea how to do that because, you know, for years I was told you have to reset, you have to reset. And if we had something that was hanging at the end of an episode, they were always nervous about it, you know, and it was like, and it's, that's why you have all that terrible like exposition at the beginning of new episodes yeah. where people are like in the kitchen, they're like, I, you know, I was thinking about this thing that you just saw in the other, <laughs> the other episode. Um, but I think maybe now, I don't know. I mean, are, are, is, is the, do they want to just put the focus more on comedy again and less on sort of like mm-hmm. stories where you feel really invested in the story you know maybe going back to that sort of just like silliness of people together being silly together i don't know i won't say goofy yeah they don't want that i just my nightmare for you is that eventually netflix calls you the person who created netflix like we want more goofy quirky comedies like new girl who's the new girl of the gen z new girl i just like i just like to picture like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes in like a meeting together. Obviously, this would never happen, but just like in a meeting together. <laughs> what we want is New Girl. Like I just that's 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 what I like to picture. Um, yeah, I don't I, I don't know, but I I was obviously like very flattered by the. I think a lot of people have discovered it on Netflix, and a lot of people, you know, it's had life after the show, which is like. It, it's kind of all you can want, you know, it's, it was so much work. It was so much work, <laughs> you know, just, you just want to believe that it was like worth it somehow. <laughs> yeah. And I can't imagine you're like, you can't, it's, it was so much work, so tied to a release schedule and that the idea that like it will find its biggest audience so detached from its time, especially as a comedy feels impossible to imagine. Yeah. And all the choices that we made based on, you know, a live audience. It's very <laughs> ironic and, you know. I mean, maybe it's that like the 35 year old men that were watching it 10 years ago just have aged into the demo <laughs> that Netflix. Was- no, you want to know the craziest thing? I had a meeting with Hulu where they were like, the like 45 year old plus men are like loving the dropout and watching it <laughs> so much. And I was like, I've never, I've, <laughs> It was like this huge victory where I was, I don't know, it just felt like this full full circle. I don't know, where do I go from here? Like 65-year-old men? <laughs> yeah, you're just like, your goal is secretly to conquer all male audiences. <laughs> only to try to forget to have only exclusively female protagonists, but like appeal to only older and older male audiences. <laughs> We're now at the final segment of the show. It's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is a comedy podcast, I call it um, a laughing round. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke? Like a street joke? 
or a knock-knock joke or a dad joke or even just a joke you can think of right now when I asked you for a joke, like a regular old joke? Oh, God. The one I always told in high school when I was, like, flirting with a guy was, like, why did the chicken cross the road? Who gives a fuck? It's a chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I remember saying that a lot. (laughs) I don't think it did what I needed it to do at the time, but... (laughs) I like I love comedy though you know I mean I, I I and you asking me this I'm like oh my god I should definitely have said something better than that but so. no I think it's perfect it's also like perfect because it's like exactly like the type it's not the joke that Jess says in the scene that we start off with but it is the same energy in terms of like how the audience is supposed to feel about it like you're, like you're engaging with like something stupid but you're like kind of enjoying the stupidity but you're also like aware that it's stupid yeah yeah it so is there a you know usually this is first i let's see how i would phrase it for you is there a joke or a character from another show or any funny thing that existed in another show that you wish you could steal that you could have put into something that you did that it was yours that you created this character that you had one of your characters say this joke etc etc you would be accused of stealing it's another dimension where everything's the same but you have had ownership over this comedic thing i remember the running joke on 30 rock of the the rural jerks (laughs) They just kept saying, like, the rural juror. It's so dumb, but I just, I was like, I, that made me laugh so hard. There's this British show, The it's a British show called Green Wing mm. that I, I I just recommend to anybody. I loved it. I love it so much. And I that was, like, a show I watched um, when I was putting the pilot of New Girl together. And I remember just, like, wanting, wanting, it, it, you know, when something's really good and you just ache, you're like... Ugh. Like, oh, the op- like the opening scene of Broad City when like they reveal that um, she's actually fucking Hannibal Barras on on <laughs> on the phone <laughs> with Abby. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I don't know. There's so much good stuff. Those are good. Rural, um, rural jer- can you remember the hardest you laughed on set of any set or one of the time you laughed the hardest I laughed really hard at the scene in the dropout where they're talking and they're in the hotel the the four guys the Walgreens guys in the hotel I was I I'd like just given birth so I was on a feed and I was like probably pumping <laughs> just like losing my shit and um just watching that was so funny but i i do remember like there was one in the first season of new girl there's an episode called bad in bed and jess um uh zoe's having sex with justin long for the first time and justin long started doing like a jimmy stort impression (laughs) while she was like slapping his ass and i just remember i was laughing so hard and i I just had that. I I just had that wonderful moment where i was like i can't believe they're letting me do this you know (laughs) I can't believe like this is gonna be on television, you know, like just like a real like moment. Um, so I remember that. Um, 
Do you have any advice for a person who wants to do something comedic with their professional life? Not really. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) That's okay. No, I mean, I think it's. Oh, I just watched the Cat Cohen special. That was so funny. I I really enjoyed that. Did you? Oh, yeah, no. I watched it. No, I liked it. I was just like, your advice is watch the cat coats. Oh, no, no, no. That's not my <laughs> No, advice. I know. Sorry. I know. That's I was, why I'm just laughing. I just want to talk to you about comedy. That's 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 what I want to do. Um, what song did you like the best? I did. I didn't like. I liked my. The, I liked when she talked about what kind of movie she wants to watch. Like she wants to watch a movie where like a woman looks in the mirror <laughs> and look as sad and says like you again or something. <laughs> that, that show that it just made me want to be like young in New York. I don't know. I had that reaction yeah. watching it because it felt like so, so at that moment in time, um, um, advice, I guess I would say, I don't, I think maybe to not think of quote unquote comedy and just write and just try to, mm-hmm. you know, write what, you know, write what you're feeling and, and let the sort of what people, what people think is funny, kind of let them decide what's funny. I think because I, as a, I don't know, as a young woman, I definitely didn't think of myself as a comedy writer. I didn't think I could be a comedy writer. I didn't think I was funny. Um, and I think that's a barrier for entry to a lot of um, mm. potentially, maybe not anymore. Back in the <laughs> old days, back in the old you... days, in the early outs, like I think there was like a like a. I think people are scared of comedy because it's you know, it's it it takes it takes a certain amount of insanity to think of yourself as funny, right? Do you think yourself as a comedy writer now? No, not really. I mean, I've been in rooms with some of the best joke writers you know i think some of the best joke writers that i know and i i i'm not that so i don't know but i mean i would i guess i would just like describe myself as a writer yeah that's what i put in my passport <laughs> you... uh, yeah i, just, I, I guess it'd be weird writing. if i wrote comedy writer on my passport <laughs> i am sure there's a lot of people that write comedy writer specifically I am absolutely certain. Um, last question. Do you have um, a joke or a comedic thing that you put somewhere that you think is really funny, is really good, that for whatever reason you had a cut or people were like, that's not good, but you'll go to your grave being like, I was right. This is funny. <laughs> Maybe not so confidently, but you're like, yeah, this is funny. I or you just the one that got away, the joke that you thought of and you now have no use for it. Could be like a new girl joke that never got in. Oh my God. The thing that came to my mind was I wrote this email to to get people to come volunteer for the Obama campaign in two thousand and eight. And it was like I'm from Michigan, so it was like an attack on Ohio, mm-hmm. which is like not a good idea. Um <laughs> Because back then Ohio was a swing state, but somebody read it who worked in the office. I was volunteering in Columbus and someone read it who worked in the office and they forwarded out with an Obama for change or Ohio for change email address. And they, um, my bosses at the Obama campaign fired me. 
<laughs> but the way that they fired me was they kind of took me into this back room. We were like in a church or a school or something. They took me into this back room and they read the email out loud to me. And after every line, they said, do you think this is funny? <laughs> and I, it was like the moment in the crucible when he's like, not my name. Like after every line, I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> I think it's funny. Yes, I think it's funny. And I like what if I had apologized, I think I could have kept my job, but I like refused to like admit that it wasn't funny. Um, uh, that's I just that is we're going to end on that because that's really funny. But thank you so much. This has been so good. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to go read your like sort of critical article about New Girl. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch The Dropout on Hulu and New Girl on Netflix. You can follow Liz on Instagram at Liz Merriweather. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to Stetson hats. Follow Wikihole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Wikihole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.